Golight presents Opinions Matter with Adrian and Jeremy. In an Opinions Matter exclusive, we want to bring you an interview now with a lady that we are calling Linda. And Linda wants to tell the story of the ripple effect of abuse on future generations. This is a shocking story, and I will warn you, it is not for the sensitive of nature. So if you're not able for the sort of information that you're going to hear during this podcast, which may be very graphic, we would advise that you don't listen. The lady's name, as I said, is Linda. At least that's the name that we have given her because we want to protect her identity. And as you will hear, we have also disguised her uh, voice. And Linda, let me begin by asking you why it's so important to disguise your voice. Well, Adrian, I have quite a big family and I have a lot of nieces and nephews um, and I don't kind of, I don't want to expose them to what they possibly don't know. There will be certain members of my family who would have discussed uh, their own childhood with their children and others who haven't. So I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, to protect them. And in terms of your family, how many would be aware of the story that you're about to tell us? They'd all be aware of what they suffered, but maybe two or three would know. Two would know the kind of details that I would talk to you with. Um, and even at that, they wouldn't quite know all of the details. Okay, so take me to the start of this story. And as I said, this podcast is called The Ripple Effect because you want to highlight how um, a, a abuse and a, a bad upbringing can manifest itself in future generations. So take me to the start of this story and your own parents. Um, I suppose, Adrian, I'll start with uh, my father was in um, a reformatory uh, when he was a teenager. He was in there for a couple of years um, and he went through a horrific time with Christian brothers. Really, really bad time. But I think people are kind of under the illusion that when, you know, people get out of those places that normal life resumes and that's forgotten about but I can speak for myself and I can speak for some other people I've spoken to on a personal level and that behaviour actually carried on, it was like learned behaviour then with their own children and they became extremely violent, sometimes physically, emotionally and sexually um, so I'm one of a, a, quite a big family um, well, actually a very big family. Um, and my mother would have been in um, temporarily in care as well when she was a, a child. So um, it was kind of like they both collided and were of kind of the same mindset, if you know what I mean. Um, both equally as vicious as each other and as violent uh, as each other. So you didn't kind of, you know, the way usually with a family you'd have one parent who might be more heavy-handed than the other, but they, they, they were both as violent as the other one, you know. Are you aware of what either or both of them may have been through in their younger years? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we've gotten records. Um, they went through a horrific, an absolutely horrific time um, in care, well, I can't really speak about my mother, what she went through, because I don't, I don't have much knowledge of that. But my father, yeah, big time. Um, severe beatings. There was, you know, there was horrendous, 
horrendous abuse in those places, as we all know. And um, he'd have been made, you know, there's records there that they, you know, were made to drink the blood from, you know, slaughtered animals. The, 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 the kids, teenagers, um, I don't, well, I have to be graphic to explain it to you, uh, would be brought out because it was farmland and they would split the throat of the pig and they were given a tin cup with the blood and told to drink it, and they did. So, and horrendous violence, you know, horrendous abuse. And uh, you you already said with your mother, you're not as clear as to what she went through, but by all accounts, far from an ideal upbringing. A grand upbringing um, in her own family life, but when she was in in care temporarily when her mother died, uh, not so good. And then I'm mindful to say to you that I have an understanding of that, Adrian, that, you know, that, as you say, that that effective people continue in behaviours, but I, I don't I don't see it as a licence either, you know. I don't see it that it's okay and it's a reason and an excuse to continue that behaviour with your own children. Okay, and this is where we bring the conversation on to yourself and put uh, a father who went through awful abuse as a child through reformatory schools and so on, your mother who didn't have an ideal upbringing either, put them together and in theory you would think that a couple like that would be united against the sort of thing that they actually went through themselves. But in fact the opposite is the case. The mirror opposite. You would think that they, you know, that they would join together and make your business kind of never ever to inflict that hurt and pain and agony on your own children. I know it changed my upbringing, changed my way with my kids. You know what I mean? Because I never, ever, ever wanted to inflict pain or make my kids afraid of the, of me or you know live in fear uh, and not feel loved or wanted or anything else. Um, they were absolutely bananas. There's, there's no other word for it. It was cruel. It was absolutely horrific. And it lasts a lifetime. You yourself have now broken that cycle. Well, you know, if, if I'm very honest with you, Adrian, I may have broken the cycle um, with violence and abuse. Absolutely, I broke that cycle. But there's another element of it, too, in that my children would have seen me suffering um, with chronic anxiety, panic attacks, uh, disordered eating. So, you know, the chain broke where the violence was concerned and the, the, the maniac behaviour, but not, not, not completely broken. Because they, my kids have definitely suffered looking at the consequences of the way I've grown. Do you know what I mean? But you've broken the cycle in terms of, if you like, taking it out on them. Oh, God, abuse, yeah, absolutely. No, no violence, no, none of that. Totally different upbringing. Take me to your own childhood and what that childhood was like, not just for you, but for uh, your siblings. You wrote, uh, you sent me an email the other day where you graphically detailed some, uh, one example of an evening in the family home. I want you, if you can, please, to to relive that, uh, that with me. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm quite happy for you to be as graphic as you need to be because I think it's very important to hear what went on in a family home at the hand of both parents, not just one. 
So give me an example from, from that email that you uh, sent me, Linda, as to what happened that particular night that you detailed. So, okay, so my father was, uh, uh, the Irish is, I'm fond of a drink, you know what I mean? Um, he, he would have been a chronic alcoholic had he been able to afford it. He couldn't, but he did drink rings around him and he drank um, excessively. So when he would come in drunk, um, he'd, he'd, he'd be in bad humour, you know, depending on what, days, what way his day had went, and he would take it out on us. So the idea then, the minute he came in the door with my mother was to get him up the stairs, out of the way, um, and get him to sleep. So I would be told to go upstairs and rub his head. When I went up the stairs to rub his head, I knew I wasn't going up uh, to, to rub his head. It would be your mother that would ask you to do that? She would never ask anything you were told, and you absolutely wouldn't argue with her. Even though I knew what I was going up to, there's no way in the world I could have said to her no, because she was violent herself, and she would have absolutely handballed me around the house. I mean, my mother kicked teeth out of my head, you know what I mean? Like, she, she wasn't a woman to be reasoned with, or to, you just would not utter the word no, it just wouldn't happen. So, um, I'd be sent upstairs with him, and I knew what was ahead. And I remember, as a child, I kind of wish, um, Adrian, that I could read to you what I emailed, read out what I emailed to you to, um, to put across exactly what happened. I'll tell you that I knew there were 254 flowers on the wallpaper in the bedroom, and I knew it because when I rubbed his head, it turned into sexual, horrific sexual abuse. And the only way that I could cope with that as a child was to distract my mind, so I'd begin counting flowers straight away. And um, it would start with him, you know, I'd pull off his shoes, he'd lay back, and I w- as I was counting, he would tell me, you know, further down, up, and he would groan like an adult would when they're aroused, you know? Um, and all the while I would count and I'd keep counting and then I'd add them, divide them, subtract them every which way just to occupy my mind, you know? Just to try and remove myself from what was really happening. And then I would run out of numbers to count. Um sometimes, and sometimes it ended before I got to the numbers, which was, which, that was a good night. But when it didn't, I'd keep counting, and then I would try and put my head into a book, the school book, or the famous five, or something, to remove myself from it. Um, and even though I was only a child, I, I was so aware, hyper aware, of every sensation in my body. I always felt like I wasn't there. I felt like I was floating, like I wasn't in the room. And I don't know whether I was trying to protect myself and remove myself from the situation psychologically, but I wouldn't have consciously known what I was doing then. I was just trying to protect myself, you know? And um, as I count, I I can remember that, that particular night that I emailed you about um, he told me I wasn't sitting down right, and I cursed myself because uh, I was wearing a dress. 
Now, I was only 10, but I, I was wishing I weren't worn trousers because he told me I wasn't sitting down. He told me to sit down. And I said, I, I am sitting. And I had said that once before. And he turned on me. So this particular time he sat down, I knew, I knew exactly what he meant by sit down. I wasn't sitting down far enough on his crutch. So I, I did what I was told because I had no choice but to do what I was told. And I remember feeling stickiness on my leg, on, on the inside of my leg. Um, and that was his sperm um, landing on me. And then he'd fall asleep and I went out the door and I was going back downstairs. Um, when I went down into the kitchen, it was just like business as usual. It was a busy house. It was, um, I was told to make the tea and the toast, which was the usual at night. And I did, and I was happy too, because it kept me brain busy, but I just wanted scalding hot water. And we had, I don't know if you remember carbolic soap, mm-hmm. pink carbolic soap. We had that. And I just wanted to rub the soap all over me and peel my skin off and just pour boiling water from a kettle onto me. Um, I hated my own hands. I hated the sight of my skin. It made me feel sick looking at it. And when I came downstairs, my ma said to me, what kept you? And there was no kind of right answer to give her, you know, so you... He just rolled with, with, with what was going on. And I said, he just took a while to go to sleep. And then she said, don't answer me back, you little whore. I didn't know what a whore was, but I knew it was wrong. I knew there was something dirty about it. I didn't kind of get grasp what it was. And I said nothing. And I made the tea and the toast. And I was trying to swallow it because it's going to more trouble if you didn't, you know, finish your tea and finish the bread. And I remember trying to eat the toast and feeling like there was no way down for it, like my throat was closed off and gulping it. And she was looking at me and warning me, eat that, eat it. So I did. And I made myself drink the tea. Um, and she was very strict around uh, eating your food. Um, I developed an eating disorder because I, I was connected back to two uh, incidents in my life. And one would be that I hated cuddle. I absolutely hated it. Even the smell of it, even now, towards my stomach. And one day, we had cuddle for the dinner, and I asked her, could I not have it because I felt sick? And she said no. And she stood over me and made me eat it. So I ate a couple of spoons of it and I threw up onto the plate. I threw it just threw it straight back up. And I had to eat the vomit and what was left on the plate as well. So there was that incident that I always connect to how, how I ended up with uh, eating issues. And another uh, issue was that we had pet rabbits out the back. And I came home from school, and it was very unusual. The dinner was ready when we come in. Normally, we had to go and get us get the food and shop, and come back, and then it be made. And we had stew, 
And I asked, could I go into the back of the field to grab it, to feed a bit of grass and whatever. And she said no. And I was asking her, please, can I just see? Because I couldn't see him in the little cage thing. But um, she lost her head with me then and smacked my head off the wall and told me, yeah, you won't find the fucking rabbit, the rabbit you had us. So she had me stew out of the, the rabbits now. I, mean, I know people eat rabbit stew or whatever now, but not a child eating a pet rabbit when they're eight-year-olds. Do you know what I mean? That's a whole different ball game. But um, that, that's the kind of... That was an everyday occurrence, that evil and that violence. It was constant. It never, ever, ever went away. And the only days there was none of that was Christmas Day. For some reason, Christmas Day, it just didn't happen. It was never violent and there was never nothing. And to this day, I love Christmas. It's obviously connected to that. With the sexual abuse with my dad, that started on the night of that I made my first Holy Communion. Um, I remember it was... <laughs> The first time I remember having brand new, you know, white vests and white knickers and this, that, and the other. And he came into the room to say goodnight to me. And he sexually abused me. And that, as I say, that was the night I made my first Holy Communion. And it went on and on and on. And it became normal for me. Um, it became that I... I kind of, the best I could hope for would be that I'd have to count less numbers, not the full 254, and not go on to pretending I was somewhere else, or, you know, just not, not being there, trying kind of not to exist. But he breathes exactly like an adult having consensual sex with another adult. He called me the odd time by my mother's name, and he pulled his filthy hand from the tip of my hair to the to my toenails. There was no part of me that wasn't touched by him. Um, I never knew a hug from him. I never knew an innocent hug, uh, ever, ever. And believe it or not, every second Sunday, a man called to the house, and it was a man that he worked for at the time, and he brought me out for a drive, and he gave a big bag of chocolate into the house, broken chocolate. Every second Sunday, he brought me out, and he brought me to a certain area, I won't name. Um, and he sexually abused me. And every time he knocked at the door, he sang a particular song, and I knew I was first. And they handed me out to him, and there's nothing will ever, ever convince me that they didn't know what he was doing, and they were happy to have me out. Um, and I do feel, Adrian, that all that behaviour, all that sexual abuse, all that madness, all that sickening, fucking savage way to treat children stemmed from the institutional abuse they suffered themselves. It's life-changing, you know. It's, people talk about, you know, uh, and I have great, great sympathy for anyone who was in uh, those institutions. I really and truly do. But I also have a huge awareness that it wasn't just them. You know, they, they, a lot of them walked out the gate and inflicted savage, savage lives on their children. So it, it, it hasn't gone away. Adrian, the gates might be closed, 
and the files are put away. But people are still living with this. I live with that every day. There is never, ever, ever a day in my life where I'm not absolutely haunted by those memories. By the way, it's been a long time since I've done an interview where I've barely spoken because I'm just fixated listening to you tell the story in such vivid detail uh, that you just said yourself that, that that it still haunts you every single day. And I can clearly hear that listening to uh, the, the way you can so graphically describe what happened to you on that one particular day. Let me ask you, how did you or did you break away from your parents? I left home when I was 17. The minute I got the opportunity, I was gone, out the door, gone. They still, they, do you know if I'm honest? There's still an element to them that controls me now, and they're dead. And that's quite, it's kind of hard to explain. But I suppose I'm just saturated in the memory of all they did to me. So I feel still, to this day, that they're still kind of cracking the whip with me. Because I do live my life in the shadow. People can say, you know, go to therapy and talk, and, you know, you can't live your life in the past. You know, Jesus Christ. When you're beaten, savagely beaten, 363 days of the year, it's very, very hard to, to step away from that. You know, when you hear just normal conversations of people saying, oh, I wish I still lived at home when I had no worries, you know, and uh, I didn't have to, all I had to worry about was what I was wearing on a night out, this, that, and other. Um, and when I was a child, there was a carefree place. So you don't have that place to go back to. Um, normally in life, when people are stressed out or whatever, they can go back in a time in their life when they were a child, when they felt safe, and they weren't stressed, and they weren't worried and frightened. And that can be a kind of safe place in your mind to bring yourself to, I suppose. I don't have that, Adrian. I, I don't have a safe place to go back to. I would rather set myself on fire I would literally pour a kind of petrol over myself and set myself on fire before I would go back and live one hour one hour of what I brought up in not even one hour, I couldn't do it One of the reasons you wanted to talk to us today is to start a conversation and it's a conversation, as you said yourself that doesn't seem to be happening but is definitely impacting lots of people's lives. And that is what you describe yourself as the ripple effect. So that your parents, when they were younger, um, had fairly brutal upbringing, certainly your father, but they passed on that awful life in spades, by the sounds of it, onto, uh, onto you. Did other uh, siblings suffer the same sort of abuse or was it just you? It wasn't just me. I wish I could say it was just me. It was only me who went out with with my dad's boss. That was only me. But all of us were absolutely beaten to a pulp. There was, um, I don't know if you remember the wires that people used to use to hang up neck curtains. There was one of them hanging in our kitchen, and it was specifically for hitting us with. There was bamboo canes. There was a hole broken over one of my siblings' back. Imagine a hole literally snapped over one of my sister's back, you know. Um, it was savage. I had two teeth 
kicked out of my head. Um, I remember vividly when when I got the kick, and that was my mother that kicked me in the mouth, in the kitchen, on the floor. And I remember sitting, not knowing what the fuck was going on. I felt like there were scars around my head. And I remember a pool of blood gathering in the bottom of my mouth and just spilling. And again, that same sensation of, of like I was away up off the ground, levitated, and looking down on myself, I felt like I wasn't there. Um, and these examples that I'm giving you are not, you know, oh, that just happened, that was a one-off. This was every day, every single day, carnage. I, I hate to be so graphic, um, but I, I made a very conscious decision that the day I ever put my hand on my kids in that way was the day I would take my own life. I would not stay on this earth. I knew I'm gone if I ever do that out here because I couldn't live with myself, you know, and I'm the mirror opposite with my own kids. As they were growing up, I was a helicopter parent, you know, I hovered over them, um, watched them like hawks, I still do, they're adults, I still, um, I'm, I kind of live frightened that something will happen to them or something, someone will hurt them or, you know, just really, really, really overprotective. I wish mine had been even slightly protective. They weren't. Um, and then you have the other element of it is that you feel guilty for not looking back on them and feeling love, you know, or when their anniversaries come around or their birthday and people are looking at you with expectations on social media. Oh, how come you're not putting on up for your ma, your dad, blah, 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 you know. In you know, verbally I said, oh, you know, I, I didn't get didn't get around to it. And in my mind, I'm like, why the fuck would I glorify people who have absolutely desecrated and demolished my life? Can I ask you one final question? Um, why now? Why have you decided to speak about this and? What do you hope to achieve? What sort of conversation do you want to start as a result of telling somebody like me your story? Adrian, because I'm tired of listening to people saying it done us no harm. Do you know that, do that crap when people talk about uh, violence towards kids? I, mean, I'm, I know there's a difference between giving a child a slap. I know that. Um, and, you know, severe violence towards a child. I... I have listened to members of my own family completely minimise that what I've told you. And it's all guilt. It's this, you know, expectation that no matter what is wrong, one, you don't speak ill of the dead. Well, I do, because I don't give a flying fuck who is in a cemetery and who is not. If they were bad and evil, and if they hurt children, well, death doesn't wipe away all of that. It just doesn't, not in my mind, you know. I'm not capable, I'm not that woman, I'm not capable of saying, oh, they're dead now and they meet their maker and this, that, and the other. I no. I think people need to understand that actually, no, it did do you harm. You know, people need to stop looking at it like, oh, you know, it's okay. Uh, that was just a normal way of life. Kids got hidings. We were all set around the place. No, that's 
that's not that's normalizing it. That's making it okay. And the amount of people I personally know who are alcoholics, drug addicts, and suffering with chronic mental health issues, eating disorders, the whole lot, that all stems from abuse with the people I know. It stems from what they went through in their lives. And they're still, uh, you know, in the conversation, oh, look, I'm sure they were sorry. They didn't mean it. No. That doesn't wash with me, Adrian. And I want people, anyone who's suffering, in any shape or form, as a direct result of an abusive childhood, whether it was physical, emotional, mental, sexual, to please, please stop feeling like you have to pretend everything is all right and normalise it. It's not normal. There's nothing normal about it. And please, please open your mouth to somebody and get help. Linda, it's extremely brave of you to uh, speak in the way in which you have. I'm very conscious that, as, as I said at the start of this podcast, you are keen to protect your identity, which is why we've disguised your voice, in, because some family don't know the full extent of what you, uh, you went through and the rest of your uh, siblings went through during your childhood. But I really appreciate you... Um, talking to us about what you describe as the ripple effect. What I'm very happy to hear, though, is that that ripple effect seems to uh, have stopped with you in that you haven't passed that on to your own children, even though, as you mentioned earlier on, they have noticed certain things about your personality and stuff that would be symptomatic of what you went through as a child. But as you described yourself, a helicopter parent, you haven't passed that abuse on to uh, your own children, which is a sign that you yourself have stopped that ripple effect. Thanks, Adrian. I'm very glad to tell you that none of my family continued that behaviour. And that is a huge comfort to me, that none of them, and it's such a big family, none of them continued that behaviour. And that is the one saving grace in all of us. Linda, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on Opinions Matter. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app.